You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Good afternoon. Welcome back. I am joined by the wonderful Ben Ford today. Ben is the guy behind commando.dev, which I think is an incredible domain. And he's a guy who wears multiple hats. I think four hats from what I can from what I can count already. Um, maybe more. So very pleased to have him on. Basically the, the reason that we wanted to discuss some stuff with him is that he is very much a systems thinker, very um, framework based, which is something I love. You know I love a good protocol. And I think there's an incredible overlap with the various skill sets that he has that can apply to you in your coaching business and in your personal life as well. So Ben, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It uh, should be should be fun. I, I completely agree on the overlaps and, uh, and protocols. So uh, yeah, this should be a fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and what's kind of led you to commando.dev? and the the winding patterns of career that's led you to this point yeah yeah sure thing so my my background is uh, i'm a i'm a technologist i've been working across sort of finance and um startups and various different companies uh, in various different guises over the last sort of 10 15 years um uh, and i had an early career in the royal marines um, so I actually taught myself to code while I was in the while I was in the core actually on a, on a ship, <laughs> no internet, just a book. Um, so that was the sort of start of my tech career. And up until probably I guess five years ago, I didn't really think there was a huge amount of crossover. Um, and it wasn't until I started building and leading my own teams and reflecting on this kind of continual pace of change in the tech industry that is driving everything now in society that I realised actually there's some super important kind of underlying fundamentals that I learned without really learning in the military. And so I've commando dev is my attempt to blend, you know, my very technical background with leadership and, and, uh, reaction speed challenges that everyone faces now as everyone's a tech company, whether they like it or not pretty much these days. That is very cool. So you learned coding from a book. Yeah. Did you have a laptop at the time? I, I had a laptop, so I, I was um, I was on board HMS HMS Ocean on the way to on the way to Iraq in two thousand three. Um, borrowed or begged some access to the only internet on the ship, which was the communication center, and went on early Amazon and and basically got a book dropped off by the next helicopter in the in the ship's post. And I had a laptop that um, uh, a friend of mine. Um, so I bought this laptop after the previous deployment. It had Windows on it. And a friend of mine who was much more confident of his own ability than he should have been said, oh, you should try this thing called Linux, a different operating system. It's like, yeah, okay, cool. And he you know, spent 30 minutes faffing with my laptop and bricked it. So I, I had to um, figure out how to get my laptop working again. Great friend. So I had a, yeah, no, he's uh, still good mates today, actually. He's now a uh, Cisco, Cisco engineering, motorbike racing lunatic. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, so... Um, yeah, so I had to figure out both how to get this laptop up and running, but also wanted to, you know, teach myself the basics of a bit of a deeper understanding, which was basically Python programming and understanding how computers worked. I have tried dipping my toe into coding, and it really gave me an appreciation for how hard it is. 
Like it was completely, I, I completely underestimated the the difficulty of it. And I think this is probably just because modern tech is designed for a three year old to use, as as we've seen. You know, the user interface, everything's so Fisher Price and big buttons and stuff. And so when you actually go into the the stuff that underlies it, you realize like how even what seems like the simplest thing happening on a screen requires loads of contingencies and if this then that and and variables and everything and you're like oh god okay this is i'm i'm further down the rabbit hole than i expected to be here yeah so i mean it's an interesting thing that the the evolution of the tech sort of ecosystem is is a bit like that but equally it's you know, the, the power is more and more being put into end users' hands. So you've got things like, and we can get onto later, you know, things like low-code tools and automation that's kind of programming without programming. So, I mean, just to give you an example, if I was to launch a, like if I wanted to build a startup today, I, built a, I was engineer number one at a startup in 2014. If I was to do something similar to, to that company now, I think it would probably cost me an order order of magnitude less in terms of getting a team together. There are a billion different platforms that I could use to accelerate that process. And you know, that that whole kind of process of evolution is that every single stage leaves a little bit behind that the next stage builds upon. So it's an accelerating curve. So that you know, the law of diminishing returns that we're used to from sort of physical training and, and things like that absolutely is inverted when it comes to technology and um you know business ecosystems so that, that is a good point that, that the longer you leave it to learn to code the easier your job's going to be in a, in a in a sense but that doesn't that's not an excuse to just procrastinate and be like oh it's fine i'll <laughs> i'll leave it till 10 years until um it's all just done by pressing a big red button that's yeah that's a yeah that's a difficult one to noodle on because it the, the importance of learning to code is not really learning the tools. It's learning the abstractions, learning the, the underlying principles. And that's definitely something that, you know, people people that understand systems and principles and things like that will always have the benefit. But actually learning to code a specific, like that programming language that I mentioned that I learned, how, I, I mean, I could pick it up again now, but I'm very uncurrent, you know, despite having built, you know, backends of banking and, and um and hedge funds with it a few years back. So the the specifics definitely fall away, but the underlying principles remain. So I, I really like this concept. And I think quite often when you're new to a, a subject, the principles or the abstractions can be so wide that it's hard to actually accept them. And so you do have to sit and learn the specifics. And then when it does fall away, as you say, you're like, ah, a sudden I've just somehow got these transferable skills that I didn't realize that I had. Definitely applied in medicine, you know, when you see you, you have to learn the, the language of medicine and cell membranes and ion exchange and all this stuff. And you're like, and you're sat there like two years into med school being like, I have no idea what's going on. Why am I learning this stuff? And then suddenly, like when the curriculum spirals and it clicks into place, all goes up one level and you're like, uh, right, there it is. And so I can definitely see the parallels with learning a a programming language, for example. And I suppose that's where, when you do have those principles in place, almost unconsciously being learned, you said now you could you could set up a new um, software as a service, for example, in a, in a fraction of the time, but you know which 
you, you know how to use those new tools, how to leverage them properly, whereas someone who's a beginner would still benefit from some first principles learning. And I think in the past, I always thought that like with the advent of no code tools and stuff, people would be like, um, that you'd still have developers saying, oh no, but you should learn the the original language because back in my day we had to crawl through barbed wire to get to school and we had to live in a cardboard box. <laughs> and I always thought it was just like wanting to pass on the cycle of abuse. But I'm realizing now that, as you say, it's uh, it's more about getting those principles in place. Okay, so so I think it's both actually. So there is so there are a bunch of people who I have great respect for in the tech industry who very much look down their nose at low code tools. And they're thinking, they're thinking about it, in my view, from, from the wrong point of view. So they're looking at, right, if I build a system with no code tools, I'm going to create a big old mess and it's going to be, you know, a, a, a big ball of mud, as they call it, um, in, in you know, a very short amount of time. Now that's true, right? If you're comparing, I don't know, solid software engineering, um, you know, traditional software engineering and deployment and long lived systems and, and all of that, that's absolutely true. If you built something like that with no code tools, you would create self mess. But that's not what people are using no code tools for. They're using no code tools for two things. One is speed of change, which is much, much more important for somebody who's just getting started. And the other is accessibility of being able to build something that you couldn't build without no code tools. So it's not building big systems with no code tools, it's building any system at all that would have been previously running on a on a spreadsheet or the back of a fag packet <laughs> and and being able to evolve that system in the face of change. And actually it's in that second one that really interestingly, there are multiple companies that I know of who are traditional software companies, not traditional, they are startup software companies and they very consciously use no and low code tools around the edges because that's where things change quickly and, and actually even having to call over to a developer and say, look, we need this thing done. Right. So there's this definitely two sort of speeds of, of execution and actually empowering people that are on the, the, the front line, if you like, of, of, um, of any organization with the ability to own and change their own workflows is a massive superpower. That's really cool. So the, yeah, the, 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 value in low-code tools is quickly being able to mock things up and just get something that's just working, even if it's a bit clunkier than it needs to be, or even if the code isn't as kind of beautiful as, as it has to be. And I see what you mean about having using both at your disposal. You know, you've got in the center the core aspect of the business that needs to be stable, and then you've got the peripheral aspects that you can just quickly build stuff out. And it's kind of the same as... Um, this sounds like a ridiculous analogy, but I always shit on kettlebells um, in uh, in our content. It's it's kind of a, a, a tongue in cheek thing, but um, a great analogy that someone responded with when I said no one ever got big or strong using kettlebells was if I want to paint my driveway, I'm going to use the big brush. I'm not going to use a paintbrush. And it's like, well, yeah, it totally makes sense. Like, use the right tool for the job. And trying to finesse your entire driveway with a little paintbrush is not is not the right tool for that for that purpose. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've got a, a, a friend of mine who um, is now the head of wellness at a startup that it's called Fast actually the startup, and he's um, he's a big big kettlebell guy, but he you know also has an incredibly 
deep background in physiology and and you know has tried a bunch of stuff he was also in the marines you know he's been a, i think sort of maybe olympic level athlete in in a few in a sport as well um and you know the problem is with any fad like it, it's not the tool it's the fetishization of the tool right you've got you know pick, pick i don't know crossfit right yeah you can get yeah you can get fit with crossfit yeah you're probably likely to injure yourself as well um and i think kettlebells when, when like i don't know if you look at uh i can't pronounce the surname but pavel's you know work and you read, yeah yeah you read some of his books like the principles of strength that kettlebells is one example of really the important thing but you know walking into a fucking i don't know are we allowed to swear on this podcast yeah swear yeah. away <laughs> <laughs> yeah, walking into a, into a David Lloyd, I should have checked that before. Walking into a David Lloyd with all the kettlebell racks, with no trouble. I mean, you see some of the some of the training in kettlebells that personal trainers who have done like some naughty online course, and then you know swinging them overhead. And yeah, I, I get why you might shit on them. <laughs> well, but but you, you're absolutely right. I've got no if if they fit the fundamental principles of strength training great you know if you can fit them into your programming but it's it's exactly that it's the fetishization and misuse of any tool probably because of holding on to some identification with it or um because of that's the way we've always done things or, or whatever else um and yeah you see the same in diet as well kind of keto and vegan and paleo but whatever else too so one of the other things that you talk about ben is situational awareness and i guess this is one of the other from from the other hat that you've been wearing and you've got a you have an e-book e or a course on this as well um i've not been able to access it actually oh really the, yeah the, the oh right yes the um, yeah the paper yeah oh, i'll send that over to you after um, my um yeah the, the embarrassing the, my website's broken at the moment <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure if you were like transferring it somewhere else or something but um yeah can you tell us a bit about that yeah, so one of the really interesting kind of journeys I've been on over the last five years or so is, like I said, I, I've i been recontextualizing my experiences in the military. So, you know, in service terms, I served for pretty much the minimum amount of time at the lowest rank possible. Um, you know, went on on some operations, but nothing super, super nails or kinetic. Um, and... You know, and then I moved into software development, and I thought, well, you know, how how could these be any different? You know, they you could not have a you know, there's not very many Marines that go into software development that way. But in 2017, 2016, 2017, a few books came out that, and I was already starting to see some parallels with leadership and things like that, that stuff that I'd already learned, and then um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink came out. Um, team of Teams by Stammer Crystal came out and Turn the Ship Around by uh, David Marquet came out all around the same time. And they're all talking about, you know, leadership and and um, and, and things like that. And, and I started looking at it with, with new eyes and I started kind of going into a bit of complexity science. And it turns out that there's this military-derived military concept um, invented by a, a guy called Colonel John Boyd that is the underlying kind of abstraction, the underlying principle of progress and learning and adaptation to change. And I'd never heard of it in the Marines. Like I'd never heard of it in the military. Most people I speak to now are, who are in the military, unless they've gone to staff college, so, you know, 
been in, in been in, in as an officer for 10 years or so, haven't heard of it. And it's just this fundamental concept that underlies all of agile software development. And part of it, part of it is, you know, how do you sense the world around you and, and how do you, um, how do you use that to change your internal model of the world around you so that you make the right decisions and take the right actions? And that inward piece is what I call situational awareness. It's not, you know, situational awareness is not anything I've invented, but the OODA loop, uh, which is this concept of observe, orient, decide, act. The observation and orientation matches up really, really well with some research that's been done into this kind of process of, building situational awareness. And I think the the magic really happens in the gaps between disciplines. And I think this is this is I mean it's the reason I wanted to talk to you that you've got these these two large areas of expertise that on the face of it have no um, overlap with each other. But actually when you go a level deeper it's like oh actually these things can apply across both. Can you tell us about how those connections start to form and what, what do you, is there anything that you use day to day from the Marines days that you apply now? Yeah. So how did those overlaps start to fall? That's a, that's a good question. In fact, let me just shut my door while I mull on that too. So. <laughs> the old uh, time buying excuse. Let me, let me just shut the door. <laughs> Yeah, my, my kids are running up and down the stairs. So, um, so software development, um, as I said, has been getting faster in in some sense, right? So the, the 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 goal of kind of agile agile software development is about you know releasing changes quicker, getting your changes in front of the customer quicker, um, and that used to be about building things more efficient more efficiently so you know everything in sort of i don't know pre five years ago or so was all about you know the paradigm of you've got this factory and you know you understand how many widgets you need to make and you just need to tinker with the machines to make the widgets more effectively and you know be efficient but that's actually a really poor analogy as an, an increasingly worse analogy because that treats your system as, as a closed system that you just need to tinker with inside but actually the real game is is adapting to change, right? Changes are constant and, uh, and actually accelerating. You know, we're seeing larger and larger dislocations in, I mean, you know, in, in your industry, COVID must have been an absolute, you know, it's been fine for me. I've been sat here working from home, no, no biggie. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, we, we can we can definitely get onto that because it, it was it was a, for, for anyone outside of the UK, the, the NHS is a system that many would, agree that is kind of held together with duct tape and maybe even masking tape like the the, the non-waterproof kind and so there's so many databases and systems that don't sync with each other and there's loads of we're faxing between departments and all this kind of stuff and then suddenly it's already at its limit of what it can capacitate and then you throw in a global pandemic and it just you, everyone just has to pick up the slack through the yeah. through human tiredness rather than through any kind of system improvement yeah and actually i was i actually ended up doing some work in the nhs in the early days of covid um which actually crystallized my thinking on this quite a lot so 
the, the problem is it's even worse than that. So you've got all these disparate systems and you've got, you know, 50 years of neglect in terms of investment and, and all these things. But again, you've also got a system that is all about efficiency, you know, loads of managers, um, you know, loads of, you know, quite a lot of risk, legal risk, things like that. So, so you've got a bunch of fairly risk averse people making decisions and taking the ability of, to make decisions away from the front line. And then you have something that's brand new that hoves into view. And what you desperately, desperately need in any industry or any business when that happens is the ability to take in information from your surroundings and, and make the right decisions, right? So what we had in, in COVID in, in many, many Western countries, not just ours, was a bunch of people in the center of the system, government, civil servants, whatever, who are utterly ill-equipped to deal with complexity and deal with paradox and, and to, to make decisions where there's lots of different inputs. So you've got those people ignoring the information that they're getting, sticking to their predefined, you know, fucking herd immunity, that one, like that keeps coming up again and again and again. That's what they've been after the whole time. Um, so they, they, you know, you've got these people that just won't learn in the middle and also no mechanism by which they could learn because there's no information flow from the outside of an organization towards the inside. And that's a lack of situation awareness, essentially. That's, yeah, I think you've nailed that. that where, where there's, if there's no feedback loop, then you end up with a, a serious problem. You know, it, ha it happens within. So if you have a, a culture within an organization where, like, the juniors will, if there's like, stuff that's not going to work and if you know you have the, the junior level will just absorb that they'll be like you know what it's all right we'll just sort it out like even if it's inefficient even if we even if you have to go to four different wards to print the document to find a working printer and then fax it to the whatever like i'll just get it sorted and so because they they're just very industrious people they don't want to complain that doesn't get fed up the chain and if it does yep. maybe it'll get fed up one level and no no further and so you have these kind of inefficiencies at a micro level that never really get picked up. And, and as you say, there's no there's no feedback loop to the the central management for that to ever even yeah. have the alarm bell that that's a that's a problem. Yeah, I think so. There's, a, there's an analogy that I've started using from biology that that maybe you'll appreciate. So a, a book that I've read recently, which is like opened my mind. Um, in many different ways is a book called scale by jeffrey west and it's about the way systems biological systems mainly but anything that has a kind of biological nature i.e something that's alive that needs to exchange energy with its environment how these things scale and you know they, they scale in different ways and the, the analogy that i started using is that you know the the factory the the flow of um value through a business is like the circulatory system Right, so you have you have energy being ingested into the system, and then it gets kind of branched downwards into the into the lower levels. And this could be like money is one of the flows to pay people's wages, um, and and that's a mostly linear system. Right? Our, even even in in our our own bodies, like when you're when you're working flat out, you're you know you're not an order or several orders of magnitude more blood flow going through your, going through your body, right? And, and you know, your capillaries 
have a fairly linear relationship to the amount of blood that flows through your arteries. Things step down in, in a regular fashion. And unfortunately, that's the, the because that's the way energy and value flows through companies, that also seems to be the way decisions flow through companies. And that's the big problem because our sensory system is completely different to that. Our sensory system is excitatory and nonlinear. And, you know, the, the, the difference in brain activity or sensory activity when there's a massive threat, like you're just about to crash your car or, you know, you've dropped a weight on your foot or something like that, right? The difference, the difference in response to that in the, in the sensory system is massively nonlinear. And that's the way it should be in businesses, right? If we see a new threat or a new opportunity, we should be able to re reorientate and refocus all of our energy on that. But we just lack the ability to do that in most, most organizations. I like that analogy. Hey, Johnny here. Just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss or muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, The Propane Protocol. But recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propanefitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. How do you bridge that gap then? How do you create a feedback loop for yourself personally or for, for a business that you're in? So I think, I think there's a simple, a simple process that the the military use a lot actually it's the the planning and the debrief cycle so most planning in in businesses is begins at the execution phase right somebody decides what we're going to do and then all right let's plan out to do it and you plan all your steps and your milestones and then you go off and you start you know beavering away at the at the roadmap um and we're really really weak on thinking about the big picture thinking about the why and it's the why that empowers people to take initiative when, when the, the actual execution goes wrong. So when the execution goes wrong, it's the execution that get, gets blamed, but really it's the, it's the situation awareness and the kind of decision-making that were deficient in many cases. It was all the steps that led up to that execution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so one of the things that the military, and when I say the military, I mean the operational military, not the bureaucratic military, but you know, when, you know, let's say a unit of, of, of Marines or soldiers is is actually in, let's say, Afghanistan or somewhere like that. The, the process by which decisions get made and and um, by which adaptation happens is this kind of planning debrief cycle. So you plan an operation and it does have the why and the context and, and how it fits into the bigger picture. It has a bunch of constraints. So, you know, limits of exploitation and... Um, uh, um, rules of engagement, all those types of things. 
And then when the operation is complete, there's a debrief, right? Not when the operation goes wrong, there's a debrief. When the operation is complete, whether it went well or badly. And the debrief takes a, you know, real 360 look at, you know, what happened, how it affected us, what we did about it. And, and crucially, and this is the bit that, that I think is the most important to translate across, what do we want to change about the way we do the work next time? So, so I, I can give you a concrete example of that, actually, from a, a friend of mine I was in training with. We caught up a few years back after after we both left the Marines, and he, he'd he gone on to become a sniper and had done a few tours of Afghanistan. And we were talking about SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures, which you know are guidelines for how you do do stuff right and in in you know the training that we did which was sort of you know year 2000 still fairly cold war centric you know very sort of traditional old school military before this kind of counterinsurgency stuff really became the bread and butter was that if you're moving through an area you would you would stick to cover right so you would you know if you're let's say if you're moving through a compound and you're going around a corner well, you know, you'd all stick to the wall, right? You stick to the wall. The first guy would would cover, and then everyone would move across, and, and he would provide covering fire. Now that's great until you're fighting an enemy that likes to put bombs in walls. So then you're in a bit of a bit of a quandary, right? It's like, okay, do we get shot at or do we get blown up? <laughs> and it turns out that um, the Taliban were much better bomb makers than they were shot. So they decided, right, we'll bin that SOP. It doesn't work for us anymore. What we'll do when we're moving through an area is we'll we'll move in the open because we're less likely to get blown up. Because actually, that gives us an advantage. Because if the Taliban do shoot at us, we're a better shot. We're, we're much better at returning fire and winning the firefight and taking that to the enemy than we are. You know, you know. So so that's a sort of counterintuitive move that okay, you put yourself at what traditionally would have been considered a risk, but actually in this new context, it's the best thing to do. I suppose what you're doing there is you're looking at, okay, we have a bunch of assumptions based on a set of parameters. And in this case, the parameters do they don't hold up. And and that's because we and it, it may even be as you so in, in that in that situation you've got their better bomb makers than they are shots, but it may also have been that they used to be good shots, but then they realized they spotted your SOP, saw that you went across the walls and they thought, hmm, why don't we uh, target the walls? So the fact that you're, it's an adaptive enemy, I suppose. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying there with software or or, um, or, or developing on online, like that, that's a changing environment. It's uh, you have to, you have to change things constantly just to just to keep pace. And yeah. languages and the environment changes and the platform and uh, and everything else too. You know, even things like this year with the the iOS 15 change and what that's done for internet marketers or whatever else. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I see what you're saying there, that it's like, as part of the Orient process, you need to say, are all of my assumptions about the current parameters correct? Or do I need to update them in line with what's actually going on? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, that, and I think the, the the big deficiency in, you know, you don't have to have an enemy to to have to change, right? If the, if the, it's the, the enemy is part of your environment, if there is an enemy or an adversary or you know, competitor, whatever you want to want to call it, that's just a part of your environment. It's part of environmental change. So, 
you know, you don't have to have a, an explicit threat or something to, to need to change. So how um, often do you have to, like in, in your daily life, how often do you have to, do you have to orient? Because I imagine it's quite a resource intensive thing to, to reevaluate all of your assumptions at every decision step. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a little branch of, I guess he's a, so there's this guy called Carl Friston, who I think he's the guy that invented the, the MRI scan. Right. So an incredibly smart, um, scientist. And he has this thing called free energy theory. Um, and free energy theory says that basically all, all things that are alive in some sense, be they, you know, individuals like us or bacteria or, you know, large companies, whatever, they all have this drive to make their internal model match with reality. Right. So the, the time to reevaluate, to go through this energy intensive process of reorienting is the time that you get surprised by something. Right. So to, to, to give another analogy, um, before COVID and before I had a, a knee injury, I used to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And when I'm rolling with, with, a, with somebody of a higher belt, it doesn't matter how big they are or, or whatever, right? When I'm rolling with somebody who's a, who's a higher belt, I have no ability to surprise them at all, right? Everything they do to me causes a massive surprise because I've got no, I've got no repertoire of learned intuitive behavior that can match their learned intuitive behavior. So everything they do puts me in a worse position, surprise-wise, and, and it causes me to go into this, what um, Boyd called a conceptual spiral. So the world outside, what they're doing to me, is changing faster than I can adapt it to my model of the world, which means I move further and further away from reality and I get choked out, <laughs> essentially. That's interesting because their their index of possible behaviors is wider than yours yeah 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 exactly and so so the time to reorientate and the time to reorientate is when you're being surprised a lot right when when something didn't happen oh we, we went out on this operation and you know one of us got blown up you know that's a pretty good time to reevaluate the second time it happens would be an even better time to reevaluate right so so you and, and the problem with most sort of, most sort of businesses is, you know, in, in your example of this, the junior doctor running around the ward, right? They're not that re, that reevaluation or that reorientation of like this thing is hurting us, is not making it to the point where decisions can be made and actions can be taken. So all of the optimizations for that observation are local, which then you know, to your point, they take away the index of actions that doctors can have on real things because they're doing bullshit. Well, yeah. And I, I would say <clears throat> that applies on a macro and a micro level. So we've talked yeah. about the macro level there, which is that it doesn't feed up institutionally or organizationally to the the, the decision makers and realizing that, you know, this bit of paperwork's required, but it's not held anywhere and you have to print it, whatever. But also on a micro level that if your mental bandwidth is taken up by stuff that is really outside of your job role or you're sleep deprived and you've got multiple things going on and you're more likely to be surprised constantly and you're more likely to make mistakes especially add into that equation you you're on the third night shift of a 
of a string of them or um you know you you your phone's going off the hook and you're dealing with multiple things at once then you end up probably in what you've described as the conceptual spiral yeah yeah i mean you you you've uh, and this is something that i think businesses do to themselves all the time right you know in in boyd's description of the uda loop he's talking about the conceptual spiral is something that you want to force your enemy into by taking away their ability to act or or properly orientate but actually businesses do this to themselves all the time uh, you know the nhs being just one example you know they they try and deliver you know they try and use all of their capacity to deliver right and unless you hold back some of your capacity for reflection and learning you're you're always i mean just the mechanics of how that works you're always going to fall away from what the environment actually needs because the further away you get if you're not learning the more effort you have to expend to keep up so unless you have some bandwidth to do this debrief process that is not just considering the level at which the job is being done but the system within which the job's being done you're always going to fall away from a changing environment that's because if you're not get, yeah there's a saying I, I can't remember i heard this first but um if you if you're not if you're not getting better you're getting worse there's no standing still so from a practical perspective then it, it makes sense to have some capacity some spare capacity all the time not not just because it's it's nice to have and you're being kind to yourself, but it's actually essential to to be able to adapt properly to to change. Yeah, you have to you have to take some time out of you know whatever your kind of cadence of operations is. There has to be some time within that cadence to you know reflect on you know KPIs or you know they they have their own risks obviously of. of just becoming metric slaves but you have to take some time to reflect on you know how things are going outside of the work and i think you know if you've got multiple different sort of tempos which most most companies and operations do i don't know you see you see a good restaurant if you're there early you'll see them do their pre-shift brief right and they'll probably do their post-shift brief which is how they build this intangible kind of situation awareness and share best practice and build that kind of real trust and and team bond that allows them to allows them to have that intuitive index of possible actions yes i I like i like that index of possible actions is a really good way of describing it well i straight out of your mouth so um so yeah i i think that that really makes sense um what, what you've said here my concern at this point is how do you in fact well there's there's two concerns the the first one is how how do you take this from a a framework into your daily behavior into kind of a typical day and then the second well and we can get to the second one because i feel like it's predicated on the first how do you how do you make that into a practical method so i think So there's a slight problem with with kind of you know frameworks and and practices, and the problem is that they always need to be emergent based on the circumstances. So you can have sort of you know rough things that work, like you know you can have a rough structure of of a debrief that um, you know starts off with the with the objective facts, 
uh, you know, to the degree, that, you know, bearing in mind the degree to which you can actually have objective facts when there's more than one person involved in something. And then you have the subjective kind of, okay, this is what we saw, this is what we think it means, and then this is what we want to do about it. So um, process, process objectively, um, uh, sorry, perceive objectively, process objectively, project, which is kind of planning and figuring out what, what we want to do about it. Um, but the specifics of that would be really different depending on you know, the, the context of the team and, and their skills and their experience and and everything else. So you really, I think you really need to try multiple different things and always be willing to, to change. So you could take, I don't know, what's a good book on this? Um, um, yeah, I mean, you, for software engineering, you could take a book on, on um, agile software development and you could implement the XP or the Scrum process where you do a daily stand-up, a weekly retrospective, or you know, end of sprint retrospective. And you know, th th there's a, that's a perfectly reasonable starting point. The problem that most software development organizations have is that that is their ending point and it becomes a Bible that people follow. And then it's just, you know, meaningless again. Yeah, it's it's meaningless, and it's a it becomes a you know ceremony, you know, there's, you know there's a big big difference between like a hunting party having a ritual to get in mind to go and kill something than a ceremony that people are forced into by by the church of the day. You know, it's a massively yeah <laughs> massively different experience. That that makes a lot of sense. So it has to it, so it has to really come from an att attitude perspective first, and a, and a willingness rather than ticking boxes. Otherwise, it, it yeah. kind of becomes empty. Or, or, yeah, yeah, and 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 that's, and that's the the attitude is key because unless people are willing to be challenged, which requires trust at all different levels, right? Unless unless your boss is willing to be challenged and invites challenge, the power dynamics in groups makes that difficult. So it sort of starts from the top with the leader, not the manager. The leader implement, or, you know, allowing the right kind of dynamics to to kind of come come into the group so i know you're a fan of ray dalio and the yeah he talks about this where it should for, for an organization to work optimally you know he so he he runs a, a hedge fund and is trying he's applying these the the principles that he's picked up from developing his hedge fund software into his organization and one of the things is exactly that it's inviting challenge from anyone in the organization doesn't matter about hierarchy you like you you let go of hierarchy yeah. in terms of ideas and allow the free flow of information um and then you, i guess you've talked as well about the the value of blamelessness in a situation otherwise if people are afraid to speak up and be like oh this went wrong and it was it was my fault at the point of execution and i think that this is something that nhs does quite well which is if something goes wrong it used to be that the individual who did the thing wrong was blamed. Now yeah. it's like, here's an amnesty. We're all going to come up with what happened. And, you know, yes, if you were the one who had the scalpel in your hand when something went wrong, that doesn't mean that it was entirely your fault. It could be a, a set of system errors that resulted in that thing happening. And and I suppose the, the debrief process there, when you're saying what did happen, how can we prevent that from happening again, rather than it was him yeah let's, let's hang him you know 
Yeah, because because you know once you hang the first person, then everyone everyone just will will hunker down, and that you know I, I don't know the exact like if there was a an objective way of measuring measuring like how much how much more energy you would have to put into undoing that than doing the damage in the first place but i bet it would be an order of magnitude if you could actually measure oh, it yeah if, well, if, you, if you suddenly terrify everyone in the organization forever yeah owning up to, <laughs> to anything yeah um so I, I i like that there's there's a few practical things there which is that i have some spare capacity on a personal and a organization level have some form of pre-brief and debrief but um try not to ritualize it try and try and have a, a, a complete intention with that and then to be open blameless uh invite challenge like cards on the table and and yeah so yeah so on on you know in this remote environment there are a couple of really useful tools that i've learned from um uh from a company called red team thinking um so bryce hoffman the um he's the author of a book called red teaming and he's the only civilian to go through the U.S. Army's Red Team Thinking training program. And Red, Red Team Thinking is a set of set of bias mitigation tools, basically, if I could sum it up. Um, and the really cool tools are, you know, it, to have this ability to um, challenge leadership, we have to recognize that in the vast majority of companies that, that ability doesn't exist. It's a difficult thing to step up and challenge your boss. It's a difficult thing for bosses sometimes to invite challenge. So the really clever little kind of cognitive hack that Red Team Thinking does is they they turn it into a system, right? So it's a a bunch of little like for example, one of one of these um, uh, liberating structures as they call them is think, write, and share. So if you're in a meeting like this, let's say there's six people in the meeting, a question is posed. Instead of everyone jumping in with their opinion, which is usually, you know, highest paid opinion goes first and therefore drowns out the rest, everyone writes down what they think. Well, everyone stops and thinks. Everyone writes down what they think, and then everybody shares in order. And just that simple thing is like, now you're no longer challenging your boss. Now you've had to write something down and you are compelled by the system to, to say what you've written down. That's very so, like yeah, so you can't change you can't change what you've what you've written down once your boss has said something. So you just have to say what you've written down, right? It's a simple, tiny little thing. But you know, the tiny little things are what makes the difference when when you consider human psychology and group dynamics. That is awesome. I, I really like that. It's, yeah, it's it's the silent auction version of a, a meeting, isn't it? Rather than being yeah. like, oh yeah, I, I agree with him because you want to look good or you want you don't want to be the dissenter or the one who yeah and it's, and it's a simple rule and another one that's i think um, i think this is bryce's own invention is um another little rule to follow is um, everybody speaks once before anybody speaks twice which ensures that you're you know you're um your shy, introverted software developer who's probably the one in the room that knows exactly what the problem is it's going to bite you in the ass in a few months time has to be has to speak up like if you you know is not um there is a system there for him or her to speak up rather than an expectation that you just have to be brave and then you know the extroverts are the ones that have all the bandwidth nice yeah i've i've heard mike isretel talk about red teaming um faddy ideas in in fitness and i suppose it's almost like steel manning them 
in order to come to a, a point of shared truth and then build things out from there. So, yeah, I, I think that's, it, it's a great concept, and I, I love some of these models that you've that you've got in place. Final thing, Ben. So when you've so we've got some of these models now, and I imagine a lot of this stuff when you're when you're out in the field and you're just you know you, you're just dealing with the overwhelm. It's easy to to skip over them or to forget that you have those models in place. How do you move from system two thinking to system one and turn it into something that becomes a an automatic reaction? So, yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting question. And actually, that's something that the military, the operational military does incredibly well, right? So, you know, bearing in mind that the massive difference between the military and a, tra and a traditional kind of company or organization is that the military has this... Um, rather extended an expensive onboarding process called basic training, <laughs> which gets everyone up to the same level. But the interesting thing is it, it, it I mean, I, I guess this is like Jocko's discipline equals freedom, right? So you have these set ways that you do things, knowing that you're going to be in, so it, it sounds really paradoxical, right? You're going to be in incredibly chaotic, um, very, very varied situations but yet you do you do things exactly the same. Okay. So how does that work? It works by by having essentially you're offloading a bunch of cognitive load onto a system, right? So, give you an example. You're you're patrolling across open country, and you start receiving fire. Now, at this point, right? There's a an enormous possible range of next actions you could take, right? If it was a bunch of civilians who hadn't had any training, probably everything would go, you know, even if they were a bunch of American civilians carrying guns, <laughs> probably everything would go to absolute shit. Everyone would do their own thing. Everyone would run in any direction. They'd run in front of each other. It would be, you know, a clusterfuck. So what the military has is the military has drills, right? So when you're in that situation as a person in a trained military unit, you always have a next action in mind, right? So part of the part of the briefing, part of the planning would have been actions on. So and when you're patrolling through through the ground, your section commander would be right, okay, fellas, you know, if we get contact from contacted from the front, standard break contact drills, um, and we we peel off to the right. So what that means is that when we did get contacted from the front, everyone would go to ground, everyone would return fire. That's the immediate action drill. So you get the rounds down, you win the initial firefight. And then the standard drill is that you would peel off and run behind into cover. And that, that has been sort of pre-rehearsed in people's brains at this point. So, so the guy on the left would then go, if, if they were going to peel right, the guy on the left would go moving and he would run and he would run past his mate, kick his leg or pat him on the shoulder and run off into cover and maybe continue giving, giving covering fire. And then the next guy would, and the next guy would, and the next guy would. And that would be like, a system that's in place to mitigate the incredible dump of adrenaline and cognitive load that the situation has just imposed upon you. So, okay, we're not we're not soldiers um, in you know in in civilian in civilian organisations, but the same principle applies, right? We will have situations where adrenaline goes up and cognitive load goes up, and having systems and augmentation to fall back on so that you can use the parts of your brain that you have left to focus on the things that, that will help 
is you know and you need that system in place before you need it like you need to build the system before you need the system <laughs> i i absolutely love that approach i've just i've just written written a couple of notes there just to reflect on it because i suppose what you've got there is the, the two sides of it you've got getting the reps in to try and form that reflex reaction in a stable environment so that you know what you need to do and then once you've got that throwing the individual into multiple chaotic situations and making them use that same framework to react until it becomes reflexive even in the most mental situations and so i suppose then you've got i imagine they 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 turn up the levels of chaos in the training to the point where most things that you can deal with day to day are nowhere near that level of chaos and so you can keep your cool yes i think there's a degree to which that's that stuff is situational though like i think if you put i don't know you, you put somebody being in a situation like that and you said, right, you're going to do, you're going to do half an hour's improv training and then you're going to get on stage in front of 500 people. Mm-hmm. Okay. I personally would still utterly shit my pants. <laughs> so it, it's situational. I, mean, I suppose it depends how, how wide you want to, you want to cast that net, but, <laughs> but I mean, that, 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 that's an interesting concept in itself that, um, the ability to respond to something or, um, discipline is, has specific domains and that you know you you have physical discipline i was talking about this with a friend the other day you you have a lot of personal trainers online that think that because they are physically disciplined in a specific domain that that means that they have nailed all forms of discipline whereas actually you it's it's a narrow field of that and doesn't transfer to other things necessarily equally you could have a very high performing business executive that's totally out of shape and a bit of an alcoholic but he's incredible at his job and he's incredibly good at just putting in the long hours so yeah i I see what you're saying that the situational fields don't always um transfer yeah and you know in both of those in both of those circumstances there could be underlying drivers that optimize for one one or one or the other of those situations so i mean your your personal trainer could be you know, potentially driven to look good by feeling insecure, which would make him before him or her perform worse in some situations. Like, for example, uh, inviting challenge from subordinates or from like if he moves up to become a gym owner, your executive, you know, might might have become incredibly good at his job to the point that he would neglect his physical health and become a bit of an alcoholic because he's been driven by something that actually means that there's some lack of balance there so yeah it's i mean it's like a really incredibly tangled web isn't it that we all live in so wow yeah so so i suppose in, if you look at it from that perspective it's not it's maybe not even discipline that's driving them it's just dealing with the underlying um that their, their underlying um sorry someone's just walked past the window and waved at me there <laughs> 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 that yeah that 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 because they're they're just driven by their compulsions rather than actively disciplining them you know exerting discipline it's not a it's not a level playing field yeah i mean there's there's all sorts of that like i mean there's a lot lot of folks that have served in the military that have stood up to incredible you know pressure and awful um experiences and and some 
move through that with a sense of growth. And, you know, it's, it's never a big issue for them at all when they leave and others, they're fine once, well, while they're still in and they're still in the environment, but that comes back to haunt them after they leave. And it's a massive problem. And, you know, you could argue with most of the second cohort that, you know, there's potentially reasons why they joined the military in the makeup of the later problems. And, you know, I'm using, I'm, I'm using an example from the military because it's a well understood one, but I think that that dynamic plays out across well, it's a human human thing right Ben there's there's not many podcasts that blow my mind and leave me <laughs> sat there thinking right I'm going to have to really sit and <laughs> pick up the pieces here um, but that that was a fantastic uh, whistle stop tour through your brain and um, I really enjoyed it it was awesome I think we should do a round two maybe with um once we've had time to sort of sit, sit and think and uh, process what's, but <laughs> there's plenty of ways we could go after this. So uh, yeah, it'd be really cool. Fantastic. So for, for, for people listening, how, how do we find out more about you and how do we um, get more into the, the specifics of this? So I'm at commando dev on Twitter, which is where I'm, you know, to, to go back to our little sideline on compulsion where I'm most active <laughs> at the moment. Um, same at commando dev on LinkedIn as well. If, if that's your preferred medium, um, you can feel free to shoot me an email at ben at commando dot dev. Um, yeah. And I think we should do another one about, uh, like some of the, some of the more specific business system stuff that we were chatting about pre, uh, pre call. That would be brilliant. We'll stick all the links in the description and I will speak to you next week. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. So we have an opportunity for you, something that we have put together that is totally free, that is a synthesis of everything that Yusuf and I have learned in fat loss, muscle gain, nutrition, training, lifestyle, habits, the works. Everything that you hear on these podcasts, condensed and more, condensed into a synthesis of seven days of learning and immersive experience to totally overhaul, enhance, and accelerate the results you're getting currently in your training and your nutrition, no matter how advanced you are or aren't. We put together a virtual learning interactive coaching experience called the Seven Day Kickstart that you can take part in whenever you're ready to. To join, simply go propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart. Enter your details and you'll be sent everything that you need. You'll be coached by the Propin Fitness coaching team over seven days for free. You'll get seven days of content sent to your email completely for free. And it gives you a look behind the scenes of what we do with clients and gives you a ton of information that previously was only available to paying clients inside of our world. So propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart to take part. And we hope to see you inside. See you in the next episode. Speak soon.